start turning the the taps on. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> it, it certainly seems like there's. It's either that or you know, civil war. So uh, <laughs> maybe that'll motivate uh, them. So so I had I had just uh, yeah. flicked the uh, the start recording. So it's your choices as to whether or not that's you want, the beginning. <laughs> whether you want civil war as the beginning or oh, not. Oh God! Because I can I can change the switch right now, real quick, and we could not. Or you could just roll with it. Um, <laughs> Cause that's it, Look, man. Like money is the solution to all of it. It's like you either spend oh, it on man. the right thing or you spend it on the wrong thing, and that's it. Like that's that's the name of the game at this point. All right. Well, um, I I think that that I feel like should I choose to say no? Let's cut it. Here's the thing. There's no way we're gonna have an honest conversation over the next hour and a half and not talk about the looming prospect of civil war. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we may as well just start it there. And okay. just to say, like, I'm not advocating for that at all. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's, I think that there are other possibilities. Yeah. And um, one of them is a massive redistribution of wealth from the federal government and, and corporations that it uh, props up for, uh, you know, to everyday people and not just, in the form of checks, but also obviously in the form of infrastructure and all these other things. That's one thing uh, which you know we should get. But then um, the other thing is we have to really figure out how to make life not revolve around money. Yeah, and that I mean that not just in this like you know foofy idealistic way. Yeah. I mean literally, it's destroying the basis of like the cultural fabric and social life. Yeah. Uh, we are like commodifying ourselves, each other, every aspect of our lives, every moment of our lives, right? Turning it into something that is about, you know, exchangeable for money. And so, and, and it's making people miserable. Mm -hmm. It's making people really, really unpleasant to be around. And um, the only way, like, like I can't get out of that individually. You can't get out of that individually, yeah. right? We're, and, and people tried about 60 years ago a massive and impressive wave of getting their friends together and moving to the woods, you know, and that was cool until they basically like tore each other apart psychologically. And, you know, it's like we're not going to get out of it in small groups. Mm -hmm. The only way that we are going to get out of a world which has its values and priorities just t turned on its head is through is collectively. Mm -hmm. And when I say collectively, I mean the people that live in a place together. Mm -hmm. Right? If we're gonna if we're gonna build a world that is worth living in in the midst of the 21st century, facing, really facing and looking in the the eye of the Leviathan of of the the challenges that are cascading toward us mm -hmm. there's that word um we're we're gonna do it as people in a place together and so we've got to build a way out and we've got to build a way out not just of you know and i'm not saying get rid of money that's not what i'm saying i'm saying to build a world where money is not the center of it yeah and somehow that is like this 
incredibly radical thought <laughs> in this world <laughs> yeah. because it, it's it's pushed everything to the margins, right? But so to build a world where where um, you know care is essentially the the the, the word mm -hmm. that I would put there and that others put there, where care is at the center of it, and I think we can do it, and it's going to be hard, and. It's going to be a, actually a struggle to do that utterly simple thing, but that's that's the task that's before us, and it's been before us for generations now, and people have known it for generations, and everyone gets bought off, <laughs> you know, <laughs> one generation after another. Uh -huh. I'm putting it simply because yeah. some people also get locked up and and repressed, right? And uh, there's a lot of other things that happen, but but on the whole, the these big moments like we're in right now, where it looks like there might be a big, you know, um, unleashing of the economic taps from from up on high. It's still a big if, you know. Yeah. But uh, those moments are actually moments of great danger mm -hmm. because that's a moment of, of turning down people's criticism of the systems and and making people say like well maybe i can put these histories aside for a little while right maybe i have a future within that you know these corporations which have been destroying the conditions for life on the planet and mm -hmm. made us all dependent on unhealthy food and uh you know destabilize the ecological <laughs> systems yeah um, don't you judge my box of Cracker Barrel macaroni? And I don't, not, you know, <laughs> I don't. The the you know the, they have a monopoly effectively yeah. on our lives. You know, we, we it's it, it's worthless to judge your box of macaroni <laughs> if you have no other options, which is why we need to quickly and urgently and carefully build other options. Yeah, we have to, uh, and. And and so that's like uh, you know the thrust of overall the kind of things that I and and the people that I'm like honored to work with on all these things like that's that's the orientation like let's let's start where we are and let's try to build a path out yeah of because because there's no um yeah because it's th there's there's something very there's a moment of real truth in in the cynicism about the politics at at the upper levels of things you know you you're you're right when you say that it's it's not going anywhere <laughs> or it's not going anywhere good yeah um but i mean there's a historical like fable or not fable there's a, there's a story that i kind of tell for myself that makes sense out of that anxiety about the moment when the federal government decides to give stuff back do you should i tell it i should i should say it um let me do your intro. For sure. What are we talking about? <laughs> That's how this begins. Great. Okay. No, 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 no. I, here's the deal, man. I haven't done this for over a month. So for, for me, I'm just kind of rough riding through. And I appreciate you being the, the person to come back back into this uh, with me, Nick. Um, and that's uh, that is my guest for episode 36 of the WTF Carbondale podcast, Nick. And I'm always real good about mispronouncing names, so I'm going to try this. Go for it. Smaligo? That's amazing. You be, because most people, there's like my name like uh, creates dyslexia for people, okay. where like people switch the words around for, or the letters around for some reason. Uh -huh. But you got all of them. You, you got it. You got it great. 
it's the uh, small the ago. episode. It's the it's the podcast where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and tie it all back together to this little place we call home, Carbondale. Uh, and uh, I'm real privileged to have Nick on this. Uh, episode as well because it's the first in uh, the series of interviews that I'm hoping to get done uh, with uh, everyone who's running for council, uh, Carbondale City Council uh, 2021. Um, and so yeah, sorry man, I didn't to cut you off. And I just want <laughs> to say thank you for inviting me. Cycle back. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for um, thank you for thinking of me and, and being putting me as your experiment with this <laughs> <laughs> listen um, man at least you're not episode number one where it was real rough like really? i watch it and i'm like i'm looking one side of the screen and the guest is looking out the other side of the screen i think you're and... a pro man it looks really great <laughs> uh no man i uh I'm, I'm glad to see you mustache glory and all it's so weird <laughs> i i normally you know when i'm out I just have the mask on, uh -huh. and then anybody that sees me, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's not exactly a joke. It, I, <laughs> I got into running, I quit smoking, and nice. I was like, I'm just gonna do something different with my face, <laughs> you know. And here it is. Well, it had to have some aerodynamics for the running that you're doing. Now you got to feel the wind cut over your chin and yeah. past your ears and downforce. Man. Yeah, it's you know, sometimes you just get sick of how you look, and so <laughs> here it is. How do you how do you feel not smoking? How has that been? Uh, it's been amazing. I tried to quit smoking for twelve years. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I feel extraordinarily grateful for all the things that helped me to to both do it and to sustain doing it. I mean, yeah, I, I, like every day, no matter how no matter how bad a day I have, uh -huh. you know, I can just be like, but. You know, <laughs> six months on that. And uh, yeah, I feel great about it. Good. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. So I, um, yeah, man, it, I, I started smoking when I was like a teenager and I yeah. smoked until I was 22. It was a, it's just an awful, awful habit, man. And it yeah. is, it is tough to get away from. Look, like, COVID really that. helped with it, you know, yeah. because uh, so many so much of my like kind of movement through the town and one of the things that one of the positives of smoking was always like the ability to have kind of spontaneous conversations with people mm -hmm. or to take a break from whatever you're doing and just like having the kind of like yeah it, it, it covid broke a lot of habits mm -hmm. <laughs> which you know on a lot of different levels but uh that's that is one of one of the positive things at least for me personally to come out of it you know um yeah it's i don't know we don't talk about realignment of priorities man that's yeah. i mean it, it is it has snapped everybody everywhere mm -hmm. into a particular way that they weren't necessarily ready or like knew that they were going to go into like it we we have missed as a global society this concept of shared experience yeah. The fragmentation of existence in yeah. so many different ways from physical nearness, right, to modern media yeah. has has pushed us into our separate worlds. And this has brought us all into one very close reality in a very short amount of time. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's, that's well, <laughs> not, okay, there's an exception not exactly. to that. No, just because I think it's, it's a one, yes, right? 
experience is fragmenting, right? There's there there isn't for for a long time. I, it became it was it was clear that there was less and less of us kind of center or some agreed upon central agreed upon basis called reality yeah. that everyone was engaged with the same thing. <laughs> and then, yeah, COVID really like became that. But then also very quickly, uh, you realize there are very different realities going on uh, within within that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as 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 a early on in it, people were talking about it as a kind of like um, something analogous to the experience of climate change, mm -hmm. but on, you know, a compressed time scale or something, mm -hmm. or that this was like practice for what that was going to be. I mean, I, I don't know if that's true, but I do think that, yeah, this, this ability to try to conceive uh, what what there's a philosopher that calls them like hyper objects, mm -hmm. right? These these things that are real things, but that are just so extended in space and time that you can't just quite grasp them. Mm -hmm. And you know they they exist like not here, not there, but between us and by us and stuff like that. You know, we we're in an epoch in which those things are. There's a lot of those, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, and there's going to be more of them, and we have to figure out how actually to live in relation to these. Um, I mean, I'm not particularly committed to that word, but these hyper objects, whatever. Yeah. Um, no, I mean that's a that's something that people don't get. I mean, that's like when we talk about wealth inequality, and people can't grasp even a billion dollars, right? If people can't grasp oh, a billion yeah. dollars, how do we expect people to grasp the concept of climate change, which is the result of something much larger than just a billion dollars? Yeah. And partly, yeah, the thing is with, with all of those, right, is to try and, and trying to figure out how to like teach or make effective these big concepts, right, is you have to break it into something that's like really present in people's immediate experience, you mm -hmm. know? And that's why, like, yeah, people, like, uh, attach to things like, you know, recycling or turning the lights off and these these really clear things, and little kids especially, right, attached mm -hmm. to those things. And that's that's good, right? But also, we all, you know, people that are trying to really think the whole thing and trying to <laughs> find a way out, we have to also recognize the structures and the larger, uh, the larger forces mm -hmm. here rather than the individual actions. Um, I feel like we're getting like way into details on things and I don't know, you, you know how to do this though. No, do dude. Do? I mean, this is, this, this is, is it. it. You okay. let people be themselves <laughs> and I'm just kind of silly in the midst of it. Okay. The, um, <laughs> where, I mean, how, how did you get introduced to Carbondale? Are you like, are you originally from here? Oh, you, like, did you move no. here like for college? Are you a yeah. high school? I thought we knew each or? other better than that. <laughs> huh? no. I, th I thought you knew. I thought, um, I mean, I may, but like also, but, not, there's, there's, but there's other people talking yeah, or they're listening. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I've been, I came down here in 2008 to do graduate school in philosophy. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Connecticut. I had lived in, a bunch of other places. I lived in Chicago, Berlin, New York, and like traveled around being in one place for like a year or two at a time. And then came here to do grad school and um, planned on just staying for a master's. Yeah. Uh, 
I got my PhD in life now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, and then I planned on kind of moving on and, uh, I, but I'd met a lot of really great people here. Um, and I got really like into the, the DIY scene, the, the house shows and the punk scene. And, um, and I, I, it was just unlike any other place I'd ever been. I'd been in like, like, you know, I grew up in a suburb of, you know, in a Connecticut suburb. Mm -hmm. And then I'd lived in big cities, but something about uh, this town and and the culture that I found, particularly mm -hmm. the DIY scenes where it was like, you know, uh, people who, and, and when I got here, there were a number of people who had like consciously decided we're gonna stay and we're gonna make this town awesome, mm -hmm. you know? And I remember just like being really struck by that idea that people would choose to stay in a place like this, you know? Um, cause, cause my kind of arrogance coming in was like, you know, there's a university. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and so I was really impressed by people's like kind of loyalty to the place. A number of those people ended up leaving and going to places like Portland and stuff, but they, but they put in time really trying to build something up. Mm -hmm. And then also I remember being really, um, impressed in my like early years of here by, do you remember like critical mass? that people would do, which was, it was like every week people would have this big bike riding party throughout mm -hmm. the town. Mm -hmm. And you, they would, you know, you'd block traffic. And if there was like a protest or something, then that would go to a protest. And this kind of like infusion of like, uh, like a DIY music culture with a kind of political sensibility. And it just like made this town like a really exciting place for me. And I met a lot of people that I really, really cherished. And so uh, when I finished my master's degree, I was like, all right, I'm gonna go to New York City or something. Mm -hmm. And I just got this like deep, deep pit in my stomach <laughs> at the idea of, cause I had already like, you know, met people and said goodbye in a bunch of other places. And uh, the idea of just like picking up and leaving again, I just didn't want to do it. And, and so, and then also, I was in the the philosophy program. They were like, "We want you to stay for a PhD," and so um, I decided to stay. Uh, I mean, I guess there, there's like another element to all of this, like thinking about staying here. At that time, I was I was like getting involved in the the effort to stop fracking uh -huh. here. You know, and I was meeting a lot of people who were like had had this deep deep commitment to this region and that was also something that i had really never like experienced or seen and was really impressed by it and um was you know working with different groups trying to raise awareness and do trainings around fracking and i i had i was i had this weird experience where i was trying to like recruit other grad students and people involved with the university to try to um, be involved in like direct action and stuff against mm -hmm. uh, fracking. And I found this weird phenomenon that I had recognized in myself like when I first got here, which was that people felt like they didn't want, like they were against fracking and they thought it was bad they, for all the right reasons. But then they're like, I, but I don't want to get involved because it doesn't feel like it's my fight because mm -hmm. I'm only here for a few years. And that really got me thinking about a kind of moral 
problem that we're facing with regard to like uh, ecology. Mm-hmm. Because I think that that experience that people have when they come in here, what I had when I was coming in here, this idea that I'm just passing through this place. And then, you know, my life doesn't start until I get to this next place or something. And so then no, the place that I'm in isn't worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's, it's like the, the people who have been here their whole lives whose job it is to fight for it. And I'm just, you know, moving through. And um, it occurred to me that that's like a general condition because the economy is just like pulling everybody everywhere. Mm-hmm. And anyone, er, most people are only where they are until they're, you know, another job comes along or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so that means that uh, a lot of people who feel a, a deep e- sense of ecological responsibility are also kind of denying themselves what it takes to, to really fight for the place that they're in, mm-hmm. you know? Because if the world is is gonna be saved, which is a weird phrase, but like if we're gonna <laughs> if we're gonna make uh, build the kind of world we need, we're gonna mm-hmm. build it place by place, and we're gonna defend it place by place. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in order to do that, yeah, I mean, I think uh, we have to. Or I made a decision for myself that I wanted to like dig in, and mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a transient person. I wanted to be a person that was rooted somewhere. And uh, I fell in love with here. <laughs> um, and it's been very sad, actually, to see a lot of people that I care about and also a lot of the, uh, like, the spontaneity and vibrancy of the kind of culture fall away, not just during COVID. I mean, that's mm-hmm. been very sad, but, but even prior to that, you know, and that's part of, I guess, something that's been motivating me for a long time now. Does that all make sense? Yeah. Okay. You, you, you I try have, to make sense. You, no, you, you have seen uh, a particular part of the soul and spirit of Carbondale. Yeah. And like pursued that along with, you know, uh, a much bigger purpose in actually trying to like do some of the things that are going to add up to a greater collection of a- actions that save a planet. That's that. I mean, yeah, that's the, the, the grandiose vision of it, you know? <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, I think, yeah, when, when, we, when we think about all these things, I mean, all of this is just, you know, chalked up to that, that old bumper sticker cliche, right? Think globally, act locally, you know? <laughs> but, but, which is, yes, let's do that, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, and, 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 and then inverse it too, you know, because, because, maybe part of the problem with that or the limitation that is like, we also have to think locally. Mm -hmm. Um, Meaning we have to dive really into the specificity of the place that we're in. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, I guess, I guess it's worth mentioning the Carbondale spring (laughs) (laughs) because it it was, it was like an exercise in this uh, for me. Um, And I can get into what it is, but, but part of the, the setup is, you know, whereas a lot of politics or radical politics or leftist politics, one of one of the shortcomings. Oh, of you lot, are the radical left. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, 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 I guess I guess I am. I, I, although what that means. Oh, 
ethically, you know, yeah, I'm on the side of that. All, all of these these uh, concepts, though, <laughs> get get twisted around, and, and I'd much rather my I, I like to try to talk about things and about Absolutely. and and not about political ideologies. Although I will if people and, and want. I and I also want to. Uh, I'm going to tune myself down now because I felt like I had been some sort of like man cow morning show host for the first 25 minutes of this <laughs> podcast. Like really? I don't know why, why this new personality was my way to ease back into it. We're 25 minutes in already. Yeah. We're 25 minutes in. Dude. I, this oh, may, this may run an hour and a half. I don't care. This is going to be one of those like the, no, we got so much stuff to talk about. Yeah. Nathan. Yeah, we, we do. And like all, here's the deal, man. I have a feeling that all the council, folks for the most part are going to have a lot of really cool stuff to talk about and like yeah. i'm just going to run out the clock on these like i'm not just gonna be like all right cool well we're at like an hour and five minutes we need to because that's my usual time frame like if somebody yeah. wants to talk for two hours like i'm just gonna let it ride yeah okay um, <laughs> well sorry well, yeah off, no. off track but back it's in fine focus. it's fine um so like the uh it's one thing to say okay uh there's a you know, capitalism is destroying the planet, um, which I, I think is true. Yeah. You know, not everybody has to agree with me on that. Something's destroying the planet. Yeah. It, it, it is involved. It's not and, Godzilla. Well, maybe and even Kong. It's not. <laughs> sorry. Something is destroying the life systems on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and we, but but what's what's required? I think for people that want to try to take responsibility for the places that they're in. And I think that I think if we want to engage with those macro level things, we have to start taking responsibility for the place that we're in. Mm -hmm. And um, that involves trying to understand how those processes are happening right here and around us. Mm -hmm. um, and so so when I say we're we have to think locally, too, right, it's not like we can just have some abstract analysis, capitalism does this, therefore I act locally on that. I mean, mm -hmm. everything is is very nuanced, you know? The story of how things developed here in this place is fascinating. I mean, we live in a really, really unique place. Or maybe every place is utterly unique, and I've just, for some reason, gotten obsessed with the history of, of here, you know? <laughs> um, but, but I think we need to be able to tell a story to ourselves about... Um, how how this town and this region came to be and how the the different kind of challenges and crises of our epochs emerged and developed here individually mm -hmm. you know and, and how the struggles that uh that of the past emerged and developed here you know so when i think about like when I, just to make this more concrete you know um this this area has been referred to as like an internal colony mm -hmm. right? a resource extraction zone. Um, and, and within that Carbondale played this really unique role as the kind of connection to the outside world mm -hmm. for much of its history because of the railroad, you know? Um, and the, and, and that like was like the first kind of phase of the history here. And then there, the, the the i'm not going to try to tell a whole s story although i want to kind of like do like just, a podcast I mean, devoted yeah, to got, that like just take 5 minutes but take but what i but here here's <laughs> the thing um this whole region you know uh, after after the first world war 
Uh -huh. <laughs> when uh, a lot of the coal mines had already started to shut down mm -hmm. around that point, but there were also like, you know, intense labor strikes. This region posed a serious problem to Springfield. You know, it was like a, a difficult region to govern. Mm -hmm. um, and after the Second World War, I, I, my view of the history here is that the building up of the university was a kind of like civilizing project, <laughs> was, was perceived that way uh -huh. and sold that way too by, by Delight Morris and uh, people on, you know, on his side and on his team, particularly I'm thinking of this guy named Baker Brownell who wrote this amazing book called The Other Illinois, which is this, is like my favorite book yeah. about the region. And it's just like, a, he's like traveling around to all these small towns. He's, and he's kind of idealizing it, talking about like how it's kind of like rugged, basic, you know, democratic impulse and people kind of salt of the earth, people who are, who are, you know, if only they just had some resources or some development because of, because these industries have shut down. And then the book ends with, as, as a pitch basically for Delight Morris's college, which is distributed throughout the whole region. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I mean, I, I know people at the university, or uh, some people understand this, but I don't know if everybody understands just how unique Delight Morris's vision was. Yeah. Like there was not, there were not universities like this one at that time. And this guy, Baker Brownell, was a, was a, he was like a philosopher and an educator, and he developed this thing called the, the Division of Area Services, mm -hmm. where people, where, where uh, professors and, um, and uh, people, you know, experts from the university would go and conduct these really long discussions with people in small towns all around here, mm -hmm. basically doing this deep participatory democracy about how they wanted their towns to develop, you know? Um, it was a really unique program for the times, like radical, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, that, along with a lot of other things, was like totally cut off after the 1970 riots. Um, and, you know, whatever, there's a lot to say about the whole trajectory of the story. But the, the, the long, long point that I'm trying to make here is that um, Carbondale, as we know it, was founded on a set of very, very bold and unorthodox ideas about what education was. Mm -hmm. That's what grew this from a town of, you know, a few thousand people with a 3,000 person uh, teacher's college or, you know, or college to a town with 23,000 students in mm -hmm. it, you know, um, over the course of a decade and a half. Um, and it, it set the condition for a place that became a mecca for counterculture, you know. Um, this place used to be called the Athens of Egypt. It's like something that I always liked about it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, but like a place where there was all of this life and vibrancy and um, – it, and I think we've we've seen the 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 long there was like a long steady decline of that, and then we've seen it kind of drop off a cliff mm -hmm. now. And so, what my wager is, what I think the the wager of the Carbondale Spring broadly is that we need an equally bold set of ideas, something that that is equally just like um, out of left field, in order to. Um, in order to sustain the town that, that drew all of us who are alive here today in, you know, 
Um, and we, we can't be afraid to, to put forward a kind of radical vision of what a university town can be. And I think if we do that, and especially if we focus on the city, then, then we'll, we'll make a place that people want to move to mm -hmm. and stay in. And that's, that's all very abstract, but if we're talking uh, more concretely about what kind of place I think we need to build, um, we have to be really honest about the fact that like this is a time of deep crisis, um, and not just ecologically, right? Socially, economically, to just name three. <laughs> Spiritually, you could also say. Um, and so I think that as a kind of overarching vision, what I'd suggest is that we, we're trying to build a space of refuge here, um, a place where people can come to and feel like they're escaping the uh, a, a world that is increasingly, um, you know, harsh, intense, potentially like, you know, politically volatile, um, and surveilled, you know, um, where, where uh, life feels more and more narrowed down to uh, survival, you know, to try to create a space where it feels like, you know, the, like life is happening. And I, and I think that a town of this size mm -hmm. and a place like this laid out, like, like this is the kind of place where you could build mm -hmm. oases like that. Mm -hmm. And um, when I think, uh, like, part of the reason, not only do I think that it's just, like, a good idea and the kind of place I want to live, but um, I think there's also this, like, weird um, kind of moral imperative that we've got in this era that is uh, motivated by climate change. Because, I mean, I think about, like, places like, uh, like you know, the... the worst example is a place like Paradise, California, you know, a place that's just wiped off the map by mm -hmm. a fire. But, you know, anybody that, that thinks about and understands what's coming and what's here, you know, knows that, that that's going to keep happening, you know. People are going to lose everything. People on the coasts, maybe, maybe even us, you know. And I think, you know, we have good reason to believe that we're going to be relatively isolated from or insulated from some of these effects, but we don't know. And so I think, like, the, the moral imperative of the time is that everybody needs to start building the kinds of places where they would want to land mm -hmm. should they lose everything. Does that make sense? Yeah, man. Yeah. I, I, I have that. I just have to ask. Yeah, no. I mean, the, so I. Yeah. This, is, this has been the idea for uh you know in, in my mind that's that's another part of this project that's another part of like building these yeah uh, you know little things that catch people so you know for for me the web i understand how to weave because dude i i can't i have i have no capacity to grow anything i have no trade with my hands like i'm not a skillful person in any way shape or form i'm worthless but i can i can build communication <laughs> Networks I think you're being, you're space. selling yourself short there, <laughs> but but no, but what you're what you're doing is great. I mean, to create yeah. and to celebrate a a place, a humble place, yeah, you know, is great. And and to to um, you know, there are brilliant and wonderful people that live here, and 
and it's it's actually so sad because uh, this is also a place of a very intense kind of like social ruts and mm-hmm. clicks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I'm not on I'm not on social media. And I realize that that's where a lot of like reality happens yeah. now. Uh, but I, I'm very happy that I'm not on it. But it's also it's like a place of my my impression is that it's it's a place of of the wrong kind. It's yeah. not you know not it's not a place of intimate connection. Yeah. You know, and um, so what you're creating is the capacity for a bit more intimacy, and I think that that's really wonderful. Well, and and casting a net too. So if when you when you go to ask these people to look at Carbondale as a place that they would land when they're faced with an imminent threat from climate change, right? Yeah. Um, they themselves become a climate refugee. Um, now, you know, we are presenting ourselves to folks, hey, like, we are a place you can come to. Like we've, we've got to be willing to reach out Yeah, the, to like when these things happen, it is not an easy conversation to have. It's not an easy conversation to go to people and say, everything has just been upended in your life, but we have a community here that we would like you to come be part of. Yeah. There, go ahead. Sorry. Well, the, the, <laughs> the only thing that I want to say is because I also know that there are people that have thoughts very similar to the ones that we're having but they have them with dollar signs in their eyes. Yeah. And it's, I think, important that we, like, see that and draw those lines mm-hmm. and and say, like, that, that that's actually a struggle for, uh, uh, the that's, that's the battle of the future. Mm-hmm. And to say very clearly that um, it is despicable to attempt to capitalize upon the tragedies that other people uh befall or you know are going through Uh that that isn't the premise of welcoming people in and that that we have to have like a radical hospitality Mm -hmm. because because as i said the the ethical the, the moral imperative here is imagine you lose everything yeah do you want to show up at a gated community with, you know, even if it's gated with a Bucky Dome or something like that, <laughs> so throwback to a long, old intervention, but, um, but uh, you know, a gated community where they're, where they're like, well, you know, we've got this, uh, you know, walled ecotopia and uh, sorry, you know, it's only if you've got, you know, where, where there are conditions put on hospitality, mm-hmm. right? That's not hospitality. And so we have to, and, and so right now, uh, here and and really everywhere, we're not doing so good in that, right? Because the most likely thing is that the patterns, the cultural patterns that we are currently enacting, are going to be the ways that we and act, you know, as the crisis intensified, mm-hmm. only mm-hmm. worse. And those are patterns of you know exclusion, um, exploitation, exploitation. I'll, I'll give a actually a, an example, you know. Um, Starting, I guess, was last year, two two years ago, uh, there was an, a big influx of people from Cairo, because mm-hmm. the pyramid housing complex mm-hmm. down there mm-hmm. was destroyed. Um, you know, they spent however many millions of dollars demolishing it rather mm-hmm. than fixing it up because, you know, there's a big port investment down there and they're mm-hmm. clearing the way for some kind of weird Midwest gentrification or something, which who knows? That's a whole other topic, but. Um, there were all these displaced people who moved into Carbondale. And point one, 
they had vouchers. And mm -hmm. so people who were renters in Carbondale started getting kicked out of their houses uh, by landlords who were raising the rent because the vouchers were more than what they were getting. Mm -hmm. So they were raising the rent so that they could get a, a voucher person from Cairo in there. Number one, right? So uh, displacing people here. And that that there is the logic of gentrification, mm -hmm. right? Even if in this case, it's just because it's federally subsidized vouchers. Mm -hmm. But then two, um, there wasn't, to my knowledge, any real effort to like welcome these folks and kind of uh, you know acknowledge their experience and how painful it must be to have come out of like really neglected housing projects for a yeah. long time and then be thrown into you know another place where um, and and the reason I say that and the reason that that come up is because I've had conversations with different people, um, particularly in the northeast side where I live, where where people have. Um, notice that folks from Cairo kind of get scapegoated mm -hmm. for different, um, for crime, violent crime or something like that. And, but then the other question that other people have mentioned is like, well, you know, did we, or was there any effort really to like welcome them mm -hmm. and to integrate people into the networks, uh, the, the, of, of support that people, you know, have, mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's like a first thing, right? Like that's the way that right now we're dealing with refugees, which is this like a laissez-faire approach, you know? Some landlords make some bucks off of them and uh, and then people are just kind of left to their own devices. Mm -hmm. What would it look like to take a more proactive approach mm -hmm. to that and say like, we, we genuinely want to welcome you here yeah. and we genuinely want to treat you with and, and and to hear about your story and to share your story and to build those relationships and mm -hmm. it's like this is this is not not easy stuff and you know this is just one little sliver of experience because taking that attitude where we're putting care for one another at the center is going to be a big uh, you know that that um, catalyze a lot of change in a lot of different quarters. When did the concept of care in your life really take hold as kind of a, a guiding light? In my life, personally, or in terms of this, like, as a concept of oh. such political importance? That's such an interesting question. I mean, I, I think I've, I've always been somebody who has had a, a deep sense of like justice and of right and wrong. And I credit my mom for that. Uh, just because she was somebody who always would like not b both like empathize and sympathize with, um, people and and also would think very critically. Mm -hmm. And like, um, and so just when I was younger, we would, I, th I feel like my, my um, basic, the basic kind of trajectory of my thinking was, was uh, influenced by, by her. Um, but then uh, the notion that we 
broadly, like normal people had the ability to transform the world in a meaningful way, right? Beyond voting for this or that person um, and just kind of hoping something happens. But the idea that there is actually action and agency that can be collectively asserted that was for me the 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 long consequence of my experience with the occupy movement mm -hmm. which was you know a thousand different things and i wrote a book about it if you want to read <laughs> and i agree with like maybe you know half of the things that are in that book now <laughs> um but uh Okay, I don't want to cut off too good, okay. but that that itself is such a such a a question that that I have that that I it fits like evolution for you off of these experiences. Mm -hmm. Like, what has that felt like? Because I mean, you're you especially having you know a a deep understanding you know with your philosophy background of just what it is to think and what it is to change and grow uh your mind uh you know how how has that evolution been uh both in you know long chunks and in short chunks how has uh trying to get a sense of what you're asking me yeah sorry yeah are you asking just like what it's like to kind of try to like think from these experiences or yeah uh, i mean well i mean you're you're talking about you know having written a book and you're like ah about uh, half of that is what i agree oh yeah with. now it's like you have you change in all sorts <laughs> I've of <changed> different <laughs> um <laughs> intervals well, and ways i mean i uh so so when i when I, the when i was in my like before occupy i'll just say because that was really a, a changing point in my life you know i was really interested in like critical theory and and philosophy political philosophy and stuff and but i but i it was all just like yeah you know we can criticize things but there was no kind of like world of practice mm -hmm. for me you know I, I i was a little involved with the union uh, you know, in, in uh, the, the graduate student union in the run up to the 2011 strike, which mm -hmm. was around the same time as Occupy. And that was interesting and <laughs> a very interesting experience. Um, but at a certain point, like through Occupy and then through subsequent experiences, I, I, I guess I, I, I realized, I mean, I remember it quite clearly, the, that I was having better conversations about justice mm -hmm. and these like broad philosophical things that I was in graduate school to discuss. I was having better conversations about those on the streets of St. Louis with people in Occupy where I felt like all of a sudden these words have meaning, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and that has been a thread that um, I've followed for quite a long time. And that is the idea that this isn't an anti-intellectual or anti-academic thing, mm -hmm. but that um, the place where these these vital and important concepts really hit the ground is the place where they they change and they grow, and that's always at the kind of vanguard of of thought is mm -hmm. is people who are actually engaged in struggling to transform the world. 
another way to say that is like a pragmatist saying, you know, or, or what could be a pragmatist saying is like, if you want to understand how something works, try to break it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll really see <laughs> it's, it's functioning, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, like, you know, Occupy was one massive experience, but then, but then also, uh, Ferguson uprising was, uh, you know, I was a participant in that and met a ton of people and was involved in an occupation through that with people from Ferguson. And, and that was a moment that like just exploded my understanding of the world mm-hmm. because, um, again, I had understood i'd taken a philosophy of race class i had understood (laughs) the you know the history of the concept of race and all these social constructions and these other Mm -hmm. things but there was uh much there 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 were there were serious and real lessons about like you know who i am and what it what what it means to have been constructed as white and what that means in our experiences you know um so anyway i don't know i maybe i lost the question that you're asking but ultimate and i mean let's bring it all the way up here you know um this the the carbondale spring which we still haven't defined or talked about uh, (laughs) (laughs) just like the thing that i'm here to talk about probably um you know it's 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 been it's it's changed me, you know. I'm just a different person than I was two years ago. My my politics are different. My sense of what's possible is different. Um, but I'm happier, partly because it was a, a vehicle for me to kind of take what felt like a kind of last step out of the realm of like ideology, mm-hmm. where I'm just like, I want to be right about the thing. I want to get it all right and have a nice conceptual you know, just be right, you know, and, <laughs> and it, and it, um, it moved me or the, the people that I was, ha- am involved with, like, just like, it just feels so much more grounded mm-hmm. where we're not, um, we have like, here are the things that we want to do. Right. And I'll just say these things because this is the, the program of the Carbondale spring. We want to reduce the Carbondale police budget by half, mm-hmm. which is to say we want to right size the Carbondale police. I'll say more about that. We want to take that money or see that money redirected into b- food autonomy, right? Building a um, food safety net of nutritious, organic gr- food grown in the city. And we want to see the city pay people to do it because it's important, just as important as anything else that the city pays for. <laughs> we want food grown here. And then the second uh, is a team of care workers, right? We want people who are trained in with uh, trauma-informed mental health, emergency crisis intervention, to be able to respond to the many crises that you don't actually need a police officer for, but you do need somebody who has a different set of training and who doesn't have a gun to get in there. And uh, that's one aspect of it, but we want a team of care workers, which would reduce the burden on the current police department. And then uh, we also want renewable energy fund we want to be we want to see solar and not just solar but other forms of autonomous energy production and uh and also forms of collective reduction of our energy needs 
in order to become less dependent upon fossil fuels here in this town. And then finally, we want a cooperative business fund, or we're building a cooperative business fund to transition businesses that are functional but up for sale or the owner's going to retire and there's not capital investment into the town to give those businesses over to their workers and also to start new businesses that are worker-owned, right, so that we are building jobs but also educating people in living in a, or creating democratic workplaces. That, I think, is a, a strategy, one, to, to solve that problem of what's called business succession, mm -hmm. but also to create literally the best place in the country to work. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if this town is uh, filled with worker-owned cooperatives mm -hmm. where, like, the quality of, you know, the, all of these things, right, the happiness quotient mm -hmm. goes up, you know, in, in, in all of these cases. Um, but if we have like a whole network of worker cooperatives that are servicing our anchor institutions, you know, this is going to be an awesome place to live and work. Mm -hmm. um, and so the the aim of the Carbondale Spring is partly, you know, drawing back on some of the things that I mentioned earlier. It's like Carbondale is in an identity crisis of sorts. Mm -hmm where, you know, it was the kind of the Athens of Egypt or some, you know, it, it, better said, it was like the central point within a mining region. And mm -hmm. then it was the, you know, university town that had that, that had this like wacky counterculture. Um, there's probably a lot more to say about it. Mm -hmm. But in any case, for the last decade or so, like things have just been floundering. Um, that's motivated in large part by the fact that the student population's dropped by about 9,000 people, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and there's a million things to say about that, but that's, it's changed, it's changed the situation, it's changed the town. And what we're trying to say is, w we don't need to just pretend that that situation's gonna reverse, uh, but, but there, there's a way that we can turn a blessing into a curse. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Um, but maybe I will in the future. I mean, for that to arrive. Um, and so, and, and because the student population has dropped so much, we estimate that the actual population of the town is around 20,000 because, you know, when you look on those signs, the 26,000, mm -hmm. that includes most of the students. And a lot of people don't know that. And I, I didn't know that when I first came here. But it does include mm -hmm. most of the students, and so we are we are at or below twenty thousand, and that means that we have double the police of the national average, which is not counting the uh, full staffed police department on SIU. <laughs> if you count them, we have triple the police of the national average. As a city, we pay double to sustain a double sized police force, and so that's that's why. We say we can we can right size the police, we can reduce their numbers to from sixty plus officers to around thirty plus officers, and that should and we should do that urgently while we still have the money, mm -hmm. so that we can redirect it and make this place the best place to live and work for hundreds of miles. You know, um, well it already is that, but um, for for thousands of miles potentially, right? We could really 
if, if, if we take on this commitment and say we want to put at the forefront of our local politics the macro challenges of our time, mm-hmm. climate change, racial justice, uh, the need to overcome a punitive approach to social problems, which is related to racial justice, but not, not just that, right? Mm-hmm. It's about a, a whole philosophy of, of that undergirds mass incarceration. Um, and, uh, and once again, transforming this place into a kind of hotbed of experimentation, but pulling together all of these things, all of these great ideas about how to live ecologically and how to live compassionately to just actually say, this is the kind of city we want to build. Let's do it. Why would we not do that? Um, and so the Carbondale Spring is just our, it's like a skeleton of that. You know, it's just like, we think these four things step in this direction, mm-hmm. you know, and, and let's do that. Let's make that commitment as a city. And then, but, uh, you know, me and everybody else involved, we're like open to more things. We could do more. That'd be awesome. And, uh, and also tweaking each of those. So, so each of those things we have like worked to start to develop so far some some more than others um and it's been over the last two years like just an incredible experience uh which i think is how i started talking about this that you know (laughs) i've changed through it and i feel like um i feel happier and more hopeful frankly and i think other people involved do too so good good am i doing good uh, dude, I'm. Here's the deal. <laughs> I, I have been. I have been a god awful host. Usually this time, uh, huh? I think you're doing fine. But hey, awesome, cool. Okay. I, maybe I'm just really self conscious after not doing this for a little while, yeah. and I I felt like I've been a little too goofy and not like absorbent enough uh, when I'm doing my chime ins of uh, you know the gravity of what you're sharing, man. Because this is. This is exactly what makes Carbondale the place that it is, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm I, cool. I'm from here, but that doesn't that shouldn't like dictate any sort of like validity in what I have to say because plenty often places are ran to the ground by people that are from there, right? Yeah. Um, the the key to this place <coughs> is that the world comes to it, right? That's always mm-hmm. my little sales pitch. I don't know how many years ago I worked it up, probably like six or seven. And I'm sure plenty of people said it before me, but I felt like I arrived at it in my own unique conclusion. Okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, and, and just that, uh, you know, it's a place where you don't have to go to the world. The world comes to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that's something that can both, you know, lift up the, the folks that are here now be inviting to, uh, folks that will at some point in time in the future be here uh, and just be like a, a guiding, like this is how you should welcome folks to your community. Like here's a standard of yeah. what it is to just be in existence. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't, I don't think you're, I don't think you're asking much beyond that. Right. Of like, just, oh, we want to live, we want to live, we'll live. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We I mean that's that's definitely it, right? I want I want everyone to live okay. Um I also think that um you know, we 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 can't build the world that we really need without without a real deep kind of uh reckoning with 
the enormity of the challenges that we face and the histories that we are swept up in. I, I, I said I would come back to something from the very beginning, and that was uh, my skepticism about the moment when the federal government turns on the economic yeah. tap. It's an in interesting story, because um, the last real great time that that happened was with the war on poverty, um, which was a Johnson administration thing. And then um, it actually really affected Carbondale, though, mm -hmm. because uh, Carbondale was selected as one of about a dozen or so so-called model cities. And the story that I had heard about this is basically that was because of somebody who's a involved with that program stepped into the northeast side of Carpendale and mm -hmm. this was in the the mid mid to late 60s I think it was probably 67 that they it, they were awarded the grant mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then it started coming in in 69 but the and and uh, so a, a local historian Gregory Carter who wrote a, a really interesting master's thesis about the northeast side of Carbondale likened it to a concentration camp um, in the kind of technical sense where it was a place where people were exposed to the direct violence of the state unmediated by rights. Where, and it functioned as a kind of internal sundown town where, where black people were not allowed out after dark mm -hmm. without um, being exposed to just straight police violence, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and uh, and then infrastructurally, it was a disaster. There were no paved roads, no street lights, um, uh, very little indoor plumbing or, or uh, you know spotty indoor plumbing. Um, and the and so Carbondale was chosen as one of the sites of this massive investment of model cities money. And over the course of about five years, I think about five or six million dollars was directed federally into the northeast side mm -hmm. to to perform the basic infrastructure of the 20th century which had been built in three quarters of the town mm -hmm. i should say you know um that that the the very construction of the infrastructure of the town utilized race as a as a as a a, a category basically they just only developed three quarters of the town mm -hmm. and um the, but so, so this one, a lot of the model cities money was actually resisted by groups like the Black Panthers because they, what they saw was that this money was coming in to places specifically where the Panthers were organizing mm -hmm. around the country. And, and that was potentially part of why Carbondale was selected because mm -hmm. even though it's a small town, um, the Black, there's a Black Panther chapter here and the Panthers were organizing, um, with local churches, with store owners, doing a free breakfast program, eventually mm -hmm. doing a free medical clinic. Uh, they started the first food co-op in Carpendale, mm -hmm. the Panthers, working with local farmers, getting mm -hmm. fresh produce and meat for the black community. Um, they were doing tremendous things. And so this Model Cities money came in and um, started to basically try to do the things that the Panthers were doing, but mm -hmm. without the politics, right? And then, here, as, in, as was the case across many other places, where there was all of this money coming in uh, to kind of recuperate what the radicals were doing. And then 
with the other hand of the state, I guess I got my left hand of my state and my right hand of the state, <laughs> the other hand of the state, they're like shooting up panther houses and, mm-hmm. and, and trapping them and murdering them and things like that. Uh, and that also happened here, right? In November 1970, the panther house was shot up with, I guess there was nine different police departments mm-hmm. all converged there. Uh, and uh, from lo- local police departments all converged there. I'm sure people have seen 778 bullets, but it's a great 15-minute uh, documentary about this history. But but I'm kind of putting it into the wider context here that mm-hmm. it's at the moment where there's all of this uh, money pouring in to kind of do the things that the Panthers were trying to do. And so you might say, well, look, they're winning. But that also came with the direct repression of those people who had created the crisis Mm-hmm. that the federal government was responding to. Mm-hmm. And and so that's the money that built the Irma Hayes Center, which you're on the board of, or we're on the board of. Um, no longer on the board of. Yeah, <laughs> but okay. the thing is, is that that building was completed in 1973, mm-hmm. and that Model City's money in, ended in 1974. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the moment the thing was completed, the, the funds were cut off, mm-hmm. right? And um, what's really interesting, there's this fascinating uh, book by a Harvard professor called From the War on Poverty to Mass Incarceration, Mm -hmm. in which what she argues is this moment of this huge federal give back, which cloaked the repression of the radical movement and and decapitation of the radical movement, Mm -hmm. actually built up the infrastructure that as soon as the political wind shifted, was utilized to build up the system of mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. Because along with the war on poverty, there was also this crackdown on crime. And the condition for getting all of this money was also the condition of getting more and more documentation and police and things like this. Like more, uh, and so, so the, the friendly infrastructure of the state ended up building up the, the, the capacity for the state to turn against those very communities in a new way with the war on drugs and what eventually turned into the construction of the largest prison system in the history of the world, Mm -hmm. which we have uh, now. It's a long, long story, story, and I apologize for that, but it's a cautionary tale for me because if we're really, really serious about transformation, whatever we want to call it, transformational change, addressing the root problems, we have to go into these moments of of transition with open eyes. We can't afford to go into them naively. And so when the U.S. government starts giving back money, right, They, it, nobody can afford to be naive about that. That, that uh, this is, you know, one, they're facing an enormous threat. They're, they are afraid of people. Mm-hmm. And, and 2020 is, is the year of that, you know? And, <laughs> afraid and the, of everybody from everywhere for yeah. all sorts of different yeah. reasons. But just, you know, w- Fear between thy the neighbor. That's what it says in the Bible. Right? <laughs> I'm pretty neighbor. sure, yeah. Oof, man. But between between uh, <laughs> the intensity and and 
enormous scope of the 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 uprising that followed the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor to the uh, stomach churning uh, events at the Capitol on January 6th. You know, I guess that that wasn't 2020, but, you know, (laughs) it ended a little late. Um, It, you know, it's like things are, uh, we live in, in times that are, that are deeply unstable and uh, people are going to act out and people are going to fight back and things, this, that, the, it's it's understandable that there would be an attempt to utilize uh, money to calm the situation down. Mm-hmm. Um, a pacifier. Yeah, but uh, what all I'm saying is we can't be naive about uh, the interests that that will likely be intended to serve, which is to say, you know, uh, corporations are afraid that, you know, I mean, insurrection isn't really good for business, mm-hmm. you know? And so uh, they, they're going to maybe green light, maybe allow for some kind of give backs or something like that. But that, but that is in order to maintain the, the imbalance mm-hmm. of power, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so there's a big difference between, you know, redistribution of wealth in order to transform the relations of power and redistribution of wealth in order to maintain the, <laughs> the relations of power. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, the simplest way. I'm sorry it took me so long to get to that. That's too, but that's the contrast here. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, so, all, uh, again, and to, to bring it back home, uh, I think that if we're going to change the relations of power, that's not something that's going to be built from above. Mm-hmm. There's not the Biden or whatever administration anywhere isn't going to do that. The only that's going to happen right here. Yeah. Right. Right here is where we are going to change the relations of power in our everyday lives and and where we're going to unearth the histories that have constructed the the world as we experience it. And, um, you know, I, I think. I, one of the things that's happening that I'm very excited about, um, just uh, very recently, some of my friends involved with the Carbondale Spring, Marilyn Tipton in particular, who's on the, the Food Autonomy Board, um, met with the Parks District to uh, start the process of doing a memorial for the Coppers plant, uh, or for the victims of the Coppers mm-hmm. plant, um, in uh, Attucks Park. And I'm, I'm sure it's still in development, but but they've okayed the idea of a memorial there. Um, and for people do, that don't know, I mean, this is like a huge part of the history of like shaping the economic life and the cultural and and the 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 racial dynamics of Carbondale was was this intensely polluting tie plant uh, on the northeast side, and just. You know, if you look around town and see what are the things that are his, the historical markers, you know, I mean, you get you get a pretty surface vision of things, and so this would be an opportunity to create something that actually unearths and and becomes a, a you know a stumbling stone into a uh, a more critical version of the history of this place, mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah, again, 
I think that that's the condition of us having an actual engaging in any actual transformation is is letting letting the truth bubble up first i watched killer mike uh-huh. grill john ossoff and uh, Raphael warnock uh maybe a couple weeks before the georgia election mm-hmm. and like his so he was he was questioning ossoff on uh, cannabis legislation and like how to actually provide mm-hmm. access to the modern legal market to the people that risked everything to build the market that exists now uh. in the traditional trade. Yeah. Right. And, and also was just like, well, I'm, I'm, I'll listen more on that. Mm -hmm. I'll read up on it and that type of stuff. He was like, you need to tell the whole story. Yeah. That's it. You totally. Uh, And and we're seeing it now with the legalization, uh, yeah. Uh, thing here too. And it's like, yeah, it's, it is, uh, it's gut wrenching to see, you know, the, the, that applies to everything. It's like, you want to understand like what you need to be doing. You can't just tell 25% of a story. Yeah. 50% of a story and be like, okay, cool. We have enough to go off of. This is how we can fix something. It's like, it has to be full. Yeah. Full on everything. Like this is how we got here. Yeah. I I think there's so much resistance to that. I mean, there's so much resistance to history. And I mean, I, I, going back, actually, I mean, I, I, I really empathize with that resistance because I was somebody that grew up with no sense of history at all mm-hmm. and, in fact, was actively, like, hostile to the idea that what happened in the past might have any uh, bearing on on what's <laughs> reasonable or right now. Uh-huh. You know, like, uh, that's ridiculous uh-huh. was, was literally the the attitude that I had as like, you know, a teenager or something. And, um, that, uh, you know, I, I had some really good teachers first, mm-hmm. uh, but, but m- more importantly, like, you know, because I wasn't always really receptive or like understood <laughs> those teachers or thought I knew everything, you know? Um, but like I had encounters with movements, right. With, with, uh, things and 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 the fact that that there, you know, the real history of um, this country is, I mean, things are written in books and stuff, but also you know, things are like passed down and mm-hmm. and movements have histories of their own. That then, when you look into or try to understand, like, what was that? Why did that happen? Then you kind of get this whole other lens on the world. And uh, I guess I've been like a student of that phenomenon um but uh well i don't, I don't remember what, where we were <laughs> we, we, we were we were never anywhere and we were always everywhere <laughs> How long have we been here? <laughs> there's so much stuff i want to talk about i feel like i've, I've uh i've just kind of you know <laughs> riffed on things without any intention but i guess that was kind of the point um does it feel does it feel different yeah. than radio and live broadcast and feeling like you've got like an A and a B that you got to get through in two. You know, 
uh, I guess what feels different is I'm <coughs> I'm me here, you know, or I'm yeah. trying to be me, <laughs> <laughs> trying to be me. Um, the radio show I do, I uh, I mean, I think also yeah, the, the camera or whatever. The radio show, I can just feel like I'm like. A voice. Thinking about whatever. It's very nice to have other people. We're talking about things. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I'm just like monologuing <laughs> without, um, without, yeah. You're not, you're not, uh, pushing back. You're just letting me go. So. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, <laughs> I guess there's so many things I want to say. I think a lot of the things I also, I don't know. Do you want to talk? Can I ask you questions or? Yeah. I mean, so the, yeah, yeah, you can. Okay. I, I had thought about like how I was going to do mine of this. If like part of it was oh, just yeah. gonna be like if part of it was just gonna be me like letting people ask me some questions and I take up five or ten minutes of people that want to ask me questions if that's a thing and then poof there I've got something and yeah. I've had to like have an earnest exchange with uh everybody. I, I think that's gonna be I think that would be an interesting way to frame all this. Mm -hmm. I don't know, man. It's all it's all very experimental <laughs> to yeah. me. Is what it feels like. I've never I've never actually done anything like this before. I've always conceptualized, but never like made it work. And now, episode thirty six. It's wild. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> well, one of the things that I want to just like I don't know. I I, I guess I want to talk about the the food autonomy project if if that's okay yeah absolutely because it's been for me i mean i i, I don't know where i would have been throughout covid if we hadn't done that in the first mm -hmm. few months i mean you know what i feel like i feel like i i a lot of people went through like a really intense depression mm -hmm. with covid i feel like mine i, I still went through it but it was delayed <laughs> because i had the food autonomy project to work on for yeah. like the first 6 months of it um, and what it's, it's just really, really exciting. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned all of these different aspects of the Carbondale spring, but that was the one that I had decided, you know, I wanted to like work a lot on with the other people that were already working on it. And then other people have, you know, are focused on other areas. Um, but we, we, we basically, when COVID started, we're, we were able to get a grant from Peter Gregory, who I'll just say his name out. He's a, a local philanthropist and mm -hmm. uh, was very, very kind and, and believed enough in, in the project to give us like startup money to try, to, to try this, this idea out, you know? And we worked with uh, people with, with Women for Change and with Addicts Community Services, and built beautiful gardens, and paid people to work in them during COVID, and um, paid people to grow food for their neighbors. And it was it was just it was hard work, <laughs> and um, but but it was this kind of intense stretch of time where, I mean, one is one of the only kind of like COVID safe. Uh, collective activities you could imagine at those early points, you know, uh, where we could work outside together and stuff. Um, but it felt like, all right, we're we're doing it. We're trying to build. We've got we've got 
resources to try to build the, the town that we want. And we're focused on the northeast side, but this year we want to expand um, at least into one other kind of quadrant of the town. And um, there's just something so fulfilling about building, you know, a, a garden is like, uh, you know, there's a reason that the myth of Eden, <laughs> you know, is a garden, you know, because because you can, there can be a space of community, a space of just, of beauty, a space of utility, there's a, a space of education, right? They're just these really potent spaces that once you kind of fall in love with one, then you're like, well, why would we just not have these everywhere? Why why do we live without these? What is a lawn? <laughs> you know, who <laughs> who came up with that idea? Interesting story. Uh, <laughs> it's actually the the roots of it was it was like a, a way of demonstrating how little you needed to grow food, you know? It's like this kind of colonial project being like, I can just afford to cut <laughs> this land down and not grow anything, and that's how rich I am or something. And I mean, it's this is insane. Like, yeah, we should be growing food everywhere. And we should, like, like the people shouldn't be left to their own devices doing it. We should be sharing knowledge about how to do it. We should organize our lives around sharing knowledge about how to do that. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. You know? Um, and it shouldn't just be vegetables. Like, we built a dozen chicken coops. Yeah, dude. <laughs> and, uh, and that was just this, like, crazy project, which, like, I, I mean, I guess I'll take credit for, like, just kind of thinking it up like, oh, I guess we could just build 12 chicken coops and give them away to people. I thought we wanted 15. <laughs> yeah. um, but then the act of actually doing it was super intense. And we did that over the course of like seven weeks. And um, w there was a lot of help. And there was a ton of people that were just like, that's a crazy and good idea. Let's do that. The people over at Little River Research and Design let us mass produce chicken coops in their factory. I mean, what kind of a town is this <laughs> where, where, um, I mean, it, it was, I mean, it makes my heart like explode that, that like people were, that we live in a place where people's like wealth, skills, time, ingenuity, creativity can be like mobilized in that way that has nothing to do with making money at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I'll tell you the worst thing about the world with money at the center of it, you know, <laughs> is this insane myth that is contradicted by every moment of our experience that, <laughs> that well, if, you know, that money is what motivates people to act. Like, you have to do so much damage to a human being to make money the motivator of of their actions. And you can yeah. do that damage. I mean, that that's that's what yeah. becoming an adult is in this crazy place, you know? But but you really really have to take away people's you have to crush people's spirit mm -hmm. in order to make money the motivator of their actions and and I don't blame people that have had their spirits crushed. That's not their fault. Yeah. But um, 
the job of of everyone that's still got a connection to that is to to rapidly create the conditions where that's no longer the case mm -hmm. and and when you have a moment where people are reduced or or are um are relieved from the stresses that money puts on them then you can get this flowering of of creativity and collective ingenuity and that's what you know for me i was on unemployment during that time you know that's what that's what i did with my unemployment time and mm -hmm. and there were a number of other people in similar situations and so anyway it people it, have too much of a misnomer on the concept that that not working for any sort of wage is by somehow indicative of laziness or an unwillingness to contribute to society. Yeah. They, they <clears throat> misattribute that to not contributing to society. Right? Yes. Because you are not wholly focused on the act of making a dollar, you're not yeah. doing anything. It's and like you can like arguably, okay, cool. We're, we, we live in a society where we still have to somehow obtain money in order to participate in the broader system of transactions that exist mm -hmm. right now, the way that everything's structured. But there are plenty of people working towards a number of idealistic opportunities, right? Across the country, across the world, all centered right here at home. And they do it because that's what it takes to create this place where you actually want to exist. Yeah. That, I mean, I remember this this thought striking me during the when, when we were working on all this, and that's like, you know, people say, well, if you didn't, if money wasn't a motivator, nothing would get done. But in fact, I think it's like actually, it's like if you have to pay somebody to do it, it's probably not worth doing. Mm -hmm. And that and that all the things that are really really essential for our lives, people are gonna do. On, they're going to do because they want to do them because they care about people or they care about themselves and, and, and others. And, um, you know, and, and then also there's the case of, of a lot of damage that happens though, where, where people's ability to prioritize is, is messed up. But, um, there's an interesting like feminist point to make about a lot of this, you know, because, um, classically the, the labor of like the reproduction of the household and stuff, right? It's unwaged labor, right? But is mm -hmm. relegated to the realm of, of women who are like, you know, marginalized from the labor market. And, you know, th that, that there's all of these, the work of care, we could say, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and I'm not just talking about the, the, institutionalized form of that but you know the emotional labor the the labor of child rearing <laughs> to say nothing of giving birth <laughs> but but of child rearing um that all of these things are like in fact the most in, important these these are the baseline this is the baseline of human life <laughs> you know this is what sustains and makes anything else possible and uh but because, but, but, but it's also the condition of the, the money system, the wage system, right? That money happens kind of on top of that realm of unpaid labor. But as we create a world in which 
money becomes the fo the, uh, and, and the wage and money becomes the focus of everything, then all of those other forms of labor suffer, mm -hmm. right? All of those things that people would do whether people were paying them or not. But now all of our time and attention gets structured around um, calculation and measurement and, and time being money. And that's just a recipe for, you know, this other kind of crisis, right? The the social crisis, the crisis of uh, like a spiritual crisis, mm -hmm. and and the fracturing of communities. And so, what you know, we we can be depressed about that, and we are, right? That's why we're that's why we're depressed. <laughs> but um, but the question is, how? What do we do about it? And um, so when we talk about, well, one, you know, like all, all of these things, like I'm, I'm critical of money or whatever, but I'm not trying to say we should like stop using money in Carbonell. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I am saying that we should use money to pay people to build the things that we need that make us just a little bit less reliant on it, you know, and, and, and not wholly, right? But but just just to create some space where it's like ah, another value. The social deflation of the value of currency. Yeah, just the the the, <laughs> the push back a little bit of it, you know. And so so what we want for the food autonomy project is we want to get we want to work with the city, you know, as a, as a nonprofit organization that can get grants from the city in order to pay people for this incredibly valuable work of building beautiful spaces of producing food. And to have those people also train neighbors and people around those gardens to work in those gardens and teach them about, you know, if they, if they need to be taught about cooking or preparing, but also to learn from them because many of them know lots of th wonderful things about that, mm -hmm. right? So to, to, but but to try to stitch together those fabrics around food as 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 something that is you know uh, that has a lot to teach us about the earth and about our bodies and about uh, community and and so we we should use money to rebuild those networks and those those uh, those spaces and and then also on the care work side you know part of our care work proposal was not just an emergency crisis response uh, uh, team, which is urgently important. And, and I know that's an idea that, that lots of people agree with. Um, and there's, there's really good models out there too. But, um, but also to have workers whose job it is to um, reach out to neighbors when there's not an emergency. And um, invite neighbors to different trainings around how to de-escalate situations, how to spread the knowledge that we want these care workers to have among neighbors mm -hmm. and how to create what we'd call like neighborhood networks uh, where, you know, maybe instead of calling the care workers, right? Or you could call the care workers instead of dispatching some professional They've got a list of other neighbors who have skills and time and can put you in direct contact with them, right? Because part of the problem, again, with, with this situation of the social crisis that we're in is, is, is isolation and loneliness and people uh, being on their own with problems that 
that just anybody with, you know, some time could solve for them. One of the stories that like sticks out from, from an earlier meeting of this is someone talking about how an elderly person in Carbondale, how they, they sat alone in their house for four days because they couldn't reach the light bulb and didn't know, didn't have anybody to call. And it wasn't until there was like a wellness check from the agency that this person worked with that, that they realized that like, oh, they're just sitting in the dark, you know? Um, and so we can try to, we should, we should invest in solving these problems of, of that, that, that are really the problems of the quality of our lives, right? The quality of our life isn't going to be solved by putting new freaking lamp posts in, you know? Like, like all of these, these ideas of quality of life or something just get like twisted and, and taken to mean just, just superficial stuff. But like we have deep, deep challenges and we have to actually seriously, collectively think about how to take these deep challenges on because no one is going to do it for us and things are just going to get worse. That's it. It's just going to get worse unless we do something. Is that where you want in the podcast? Sure. <laughs> uh, that is episode number 36. Oh my God. Oh my God. I feel like I, I feel like I could talk for, I feel like I want to keep talking for two more hours just because I don't feel like I said all the things that I need to say. Um, I feel like like I'll just put you in a box. I'll put like a stuffed like animal up here, and you can just talk. <laughs> yeah. Let your let, how long let was it that? all out. <laughs> but no, um, no, man. This is you put a lot of thought into action. Yeah, <laughs> a try, right? Yeah, and it's like that. You 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 have to think about what are the next five other things that occur in this sequence so that I can play through that. And then like, what am I prepared to be out of sequence in this plan that I have and then redirect back into, mm-hmm. you know, the greater trajectory. Like this is, this is just part of it. And, and, and you know, the reason why you can, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk to lots of people <laughs> about, you know, a continuation of this. Yeah. Right. In the coming months is that, uh, you know, like, like you play, you play through these things and you just, you have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes you can start at one point that's in the middle of it and circle back around to it. It's not always point A, point B, point C and like this linear mm-hmm. excursion that you go on. It's like, this all is connected and I can start the conversation at any point and I will find myself back at that point. Yeah, having addressed eight other points along <laughs> the way, that's, that's the real interrelated man. Are we, uh, are we done here? Then? Um, Am I, is it yeah, off yeah, yeah. No, no, you're, okay. you're good. You're good. It's first, uh, oh first God. ATF Carbondale, uh, belt buckle shot <laughs> for episode 36, uh, with Nick Smallago. Uh, yeah, it was just uh, no, no. You're you're oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even ask him about his hats. 
Yeah. But, but you, <laughs> but he can tell the story of the hat elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's good to be back in the seat talking to folks. Um, talk <laughs> even if I can't do uh, halfway worthwhile talking, I'll get the rust knocked off. Uh, we'll get back to it. Uh, again, this was the the first in a series of interviews I'm trying to do with all of the 2021 Carbondale City Council candidates um, because they are all interesting people that all contribute to this community in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and it's worth telling these stories for you to hear. Um, and so I appreciate you listening um, and see if we can stick the landing on the tagline. Again, uh, have a good one, whatever that one may be.